0: This rules, fights the champion of light. Where hope seems lost, there rides the rebellion. Together they stand ready against the dark, evil warriors of the Horde and their leader, the terrible Hordak. armed with hope and ancient powers against the force of an intergalactic army. This is the story of one who will become leader of the Great Rebellion. She-Ra, Princess of How-How-How-How-How! Hello, everybody. My name is Eric. My name is Lauren. It's nice to hang out with you and talk about a cartoon from the year I was born, I guess. Whoa!
1: (laughs) The year after I was born. So yeah, this is the pilot episode of She-Ra, Progressive of Power. So what we're going to do, this is a rewatch podcast with a political twist. We're going to watch episodes of the She-Ra animated series, which is now on Netflix, and kind of look at the ways that it both holds up, and then fails a modern-day progressive agenda. And I'll talk about why I wanted to do that in a minute. But first, I thought we should maybe get into just a little bit about who we are. Because, you know, nerds love to gatekeep. I might edit that line out. (laughs) But I, I feel like we should just give some context to why we are two people who are qualified to take on this project. So first off, both of us are political volunteers for a very progressive Illinois campaign.
0: A certain progressive Illinois campaign.
1: Yes, Uh, maybe gubernatorial in nature, you know, uh, maybe if you watch our Facebook, it'll become clear, but either way, so the, you know, we're both on that side of the political spectrum and we're both very nerdy. Uh, I make podcasts for a group of people called the Nerdologues and I don't know, this show has always been a favorite of mine and well, I saw Wonder Woman, you know, and I thought, oh, Wonder Woman is amazing. I want to watch another thing with an amazing female lead. And then I'm like, oh, I love Shira. Hey, it's on Netflix. Now, FYI, I have the DVDs, but they're buried <laughs> away. I dug them out to watch the documentaries for this podcast, though. But I'm like, ooh, Netflix is easy. And I started watching it, and I'm like, this feels maybe too relevant.
0: Netflix is just successfully making every other form of media irrelevant. Like, well, you have the DVDs. You don't need them.
1: Yeah, but so, Lauren, you have never... Seen Shira before.
0: Right. And that's kind of why I agreed to this otherwise, I think, pretty niche premise. So I wrote the blog Geek Girl Chicago for a solid five years or so. Um, I've kind of backed off of that. Um, mostly because when I was very small and into science fiction and comics and geek culture, it was an underground kind of uh subculture. And now it's just culture. You know, I was just downtown uh, and went into Uniqlo with some friends after going to Starbucks. And all of Uniqlo was like Nintendo shirts and Disney. And my friend goes, it's like we're at a convention, except it's just downtown Chicago. It's not it's not geeky anymore, so I hate to be that elitist dork who's like, I don't like it anymore because it's mainstream. But I was really excited to maybe talk about something not everyone has heard of and watch something that I've actually never experienced before. Um, I also cosplay. I have worked on other podcasts such as Our Fair City, and I don't know. There's a I'm a dog person. We're we're here with Eric's dog, and she definitely smells my dog. <laughs> And I find her very distracting because that's a big part of my personality these days.
1: Uh, Yeah, P.S. My dog's name is AC, short for, I kid you not, Adora Corona. So clearly the She-Ra fandom is big in me. But yeah, you'll get to know Lauren and I through the course of this show. Uh, Let's dive into She-Ra. So we're going to cover a different episode or a different set of episodes every week. Today we're talking about the the first five, which is kind of the pilot of She-Ra. It's called The Sword of She-Ra. And uh, this is going to be more of a top-level discussion, I imagine, than what eventual episodes will end up being. Because I don't want to get into as much plot specifics as just kind of like the creation of this character and why she exists. And yeah, we'll talk about the the five episodes and stuff, but... I think the background of she is really fascinating. So if I may, I will lay the groundwork. And then I am so excited to hear what you thought about this.
0: <laughs> it's it's on your face. He's smiling so big right now.
1: Oh, my God. This is great. Because, well, I asked Lauren, what do you know about She-Ra? And she's like, I've seen girls cosplay as her and that's it. And I'm like, you don't know her story at all. No. no. Okay. So clearly there's a big twist in the sort of She-Ra. And Lauren didn't know what it was until she watched these episodes. So we're going to get there. But let me talk about the background of the show, because I think it's interesting and it's going to inform our discussion about pro- uh, like the progressive values of the show. So this is 1985, and uh, He-Man, which I'm sure a lot of you guys are familiar with, at least in passing, that's all you need to be, uh, has been a show for two years, and the production company that makes it has reached the point where they have so many episodes that they would actually be losing money to produce new episodes, like it was just in their advantage to sell it to syndication. And so they're looking for the next show to do. So Lou Scheimer, the guy who runs the company, wanted to do a show for girls. Uh, The reason being, he had worked a long time ago on a show called The Hardy Boys, and his daughter said to him, Dad, why do the girls always trip and fall? And so Lou said, I want to make a show where it's the men who trip and fall. And initially, Filmation was going to produce a Barbie show, and Mattel said, no thanks, and this is the actual quote, According to Lou, which is very creepy, the Mattel exec said, Because Barbie already exists in the mind of a child, what? which is a weird reason <laughs> to deny a business partnership. But so Lou and, and his crew were thinking about the success of He-Man, and a couple of the better writers from He-Man, because that show certainly had ups and downs, but a couple of like the actual consistent writers had this idea to like what if what if he had a sister? And what if no one knew? So that's the basic plot of of the Sword of She-Ra is that He-Man is summoned to go to this strange world he's never been to before and he takes this sword with him and the sword is designed for this woman who works for the bad guys, the evil Horde who ends up being his sister and so you find out that Hordak, the leader of the Horde took her as a baby from her parents and then like hid her away and the pain of that memory was so great that the sorceress on Eternia on He-Man's World made everybody forget except for her parents and the sorceress herself, which is, like, fucking traumatic, and still that plot gives me chills, but what we have here is an action show with a female lead, which already is pretty pretty irregular, and that was something that the, the creative team was very aware of. You know, staff writer Francis Moss, I have some quotes from some documentaries on the DVD, he said, from page one, we're empowering girls. I don't know about proto-feminism, but it certainly was female-empowering. Staff writer J. Michael Straczynski doesn't hesitate to use the F-word. He said it was feminist from the go. So this is very consciously a female-centric show. A lot of the staff shied away from calling it feminist because that was the time. But, you know, it's not really any different now. People still don't like to use that word, necessarily. But more than that, it's kind of this story... You know, in He-Man, it's the typical 80s cartoon setup where the good guys are reactive. So the bad guy does something and then the good guy's like, you can't do that. That's against the social order. And then he comes and stops them. But She-Ra, it's the inverse where these guys called the Horde have been ruling this planet for, according to the series Bible, 20 years. And they they are the status quo. And the heroes are the rebellion fighting against the status quo to make that change. So the heroes are proactive in the show. And I mean not to get well. (laughs) I'm gonna have to not say not to get too political on this podcast because we have the word progressive in the title, right?
0: I think you're stuck.
1: This is a political show. It felt it's not a one to one correlation, but watching the pilot again on Netflix, I'm like, this feels this is too real right now. This idea of like an evil empire that controls basically everything from you know taxation to to free speech and the people are subjugated and some of them don't even know it's just really it feels more relevant than it probably has in a while and I want to read before I turn it over to Lauren what J. Michael Shaczynski who by the way you guys will probably note is the creator of Babylon 5 so he went on to have a wonderful career after She-Ra what J. Michael Shaczynski wrote in the series Bible for She-Ra page 1 he says the time for words is past it is the time for action a time for the taking of vows the forging of alliances against tyranny a time for leadership. For over 20 years, the evil horde has ruled Etheria with an iron fist and cruel calculation. Their rule has gone largely unchallenged, until now. A band of patriots, brought together by their love of freedom, have pledged their lives and their swords to bring down the dark dictators from another world, willing to tackle impossible odds in their quest for an ideal. Freedom. Leading this band of patriots is Shira, Princess of Power. And so... Even though a lot of episodes of the show did devolve into standard 80s cartoon fare. I think it is baked into the very premise of the show. Like, these writers are very conscious of the fact that this is, at its heart, a political struggle. A band of women fighting an oppressive, militaristic regime led by an evil pig man. And that just feels (laughs) so relevant. So... Lauren Fates, yes. what did you think of the first five episodes of She-Ra?
0: Oh my gosh, what a ride. So I do need to point out that before I started watching She-Ra, um, I had not watched He-Man either, and Eric gave me an episode of He-Man to watch. And, uh, you know, it was charming. <laughs> I, I joked that just the, the background music was always just he-man over and over and over. It was just so pumped up and masculine the whole time that I'm thinking, gosh, you know, is, is this Shira show just going to be this in pink and purple and light blue? And I, I mentioned the color palette because honestly... Oddly enough, that was the first thing about this show to really strike me. Um, in addition to there being so many women on screen all the time, we live in this era still today where Toys R Us and Target have these like pink aisles where that's the girl stuff, and that's where you go to look for girl toys. And Shira and the Rebellion and all the villains—they don't stick to that color palette. It is a wonderfully just colorful show and it's not screaming princess, pretty, feminine the whole time, and yet it manages to be feminine, and that's pretty exciting to me. Um, Some of the things that surprised me from the get-go, I wasn't expecting a male narrator uh, in the beginning of the theme. Where darkness rules. But, you know, all right, cool. And um, in one of the first scenes, so they clearly they're trying to sell she-Ra through He-Man like he mans super popular I guess in yes. 85 it
1: was uh for its second season I think it was the highest rated show in syndication
0: yeah wow uh and so they really make it He-Man's story for one to two episodes But also they, you know, they show him cooking. They show him having relationships with his mom and like the women in his life. And he's, you know, not as uh, bloated and masculine a character as I expected them to present him as. (laughs) This show is very 80s though. And I loved watching how some of this animation was so intense. You see battle cat leap forward in this like very violent and action-packed way and then a monster grabs him and throws him and the sound effect is still like boing (laughs) <laughs> they're just the the 80s were this time when cartoons were still for kids there was no acknowledgement that cartoons could really be for grown-ups so all the voices on this show are so goofy all the sound effects are so goofy and anytime it just starts to take itself seriously someone comes in with this voice and you're like oh <laughs> hello 1985 <laughs> Some of the things I want to talk about that you brought up, I I love, I'm so interested in that quote that calls the Rebellion a band of patriots. Because the one quote that I wrote down was in episode one, Bo, who is the token man whose costume I love, and I'm going to Dragon Con in September, and if I don't see at least one Bo, I'll just cry. Uh, The quote was, Surrender, citizen! (laughs) <laughs> I'm not a citizen. I'm a rebel. And I, I, I've I, been thinking about that for the last like 12 hours or so, because I would argue that a patriot who's fighting for justice and equality and freedom is like the ideal citizen. But this rebellion is so disconnected from the horde and the establishment, which I guess has been around for 20 years. They don't even call themselves like citizens of that regime. And I think that's that's striking, especially if you're talking about our current political climate. I think that's an accusation often that comes from both sides. If you're not, uh, I'm going to say the T word, if you're not a Trump fan in 2017, you're not a patriot. But then the other side says, if you're supporting the tyranny of this, uh, then you're not a patriot, and uh, these people in the rebellion are patriots but don't consider themselves citizens, and I want to hear what you think about that.
1: Well, first of all, I like that you uh, caught that quote because I also, I just read the series Bible for the first time last night, and I had never thought to refer to the rebellion as patriots, and I think that that also kind of has... Because you know, under eight years of Obama, that was what all the angry people on the far right—oh, we're patriots—and so I bet now. I mean, I don't want to put too much on JMS's politics, but he probably was pretty lefty to to write the series bible for this show. He might not use that word "patriot." And I also think, first of all, I really want to talk about Bo, and maybe this isn't the episode for it, but just in general, like that character of the token male and his crazy outfit and his his weird relationships. There's that moment in episode three where. Adam's like oh I'm gonna go to the fright zone and find Adora and he's like god speed you on your quest Adam and Adam's just kind of like yeah cool man (laughs) anyway I'm gonna go bye
0: He's just too extra, even for He-Man.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, side note, Larry Tilio in the series Bible mentions that Bo is kind of supposed to be the Adam figure on Etheria. Not the He-Man, but the Adam. The kind of, oh, he, he jokes around, he kind of slacks off, and he's maybe a little too earnest, and he can't always back it up. Anyway, to the quote of, I'm not a citizen, I'm a rebel. Yeah, nowhere in the show does it ever say the Horde's been here 20 years. It's just kind of an indeterminate amount of time. And there's episodes we'll watch later where it seems clear that they are the establishment. And I think maybe that's the difference between the show and, well, that's clearly a difference between the show and where we are in the world is, you know, the horde is, they're straight, like, they're not even making runs at being a democracy. Like, it's straight up tyranny. Uh, So I guess in that sense, I think Bo's quote is legit. But I think that's probably a way that, yeah, it is disconnected from from the modern times. We are all still citizens, even if we consider ourselves resisting the current power structure.
0: Right. I feel like we all still believe in America and our version of what America could be at its best. And we all want to live in that place. You hear people who are like, well, if you don't love it, you should leave it. None of us want to leave. We just want this place that's our home to be better and include everyone. And I, I'm I guess in the end, not to skip way ahead, but that's She-Ra's choice as well. She's given the option to go to sort of this idealized place where the good guys uh, are already the force in power. Uh in Eternia, He-Man's family is getting to rule. I mean, they're 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 menaced all the time by Skeletor, but they're that's the king and the queen and the good guys kind of make the government, if you will. And she is like, no, I can't stay. I'm choosing to go back to this tyrannical, miserable place because my job there is not done. So I guess she is a citizen. She kind of insists she is.
1: Yeah. And I think that's really the crux of what drives this show. And, you know, we're going to do an episode later on the, the price of freedom, which if anybody listening is a She-Ra fan, you'll be like, yeah, that's the episode you have to do. But yeah, that's the key difference in the show, right? Is like She Ra, she gets a taste of home. And I, I think a very sweet moment. And I also think a moment that, if you are a He Man fan, kind of closes off. Because even in the one episode you saw, you know, there's this through line in the series Prince Adam is always a disappointment to his dad because he can't let it be known that he's He Man. So he's just kind of this jokey prince. And then he brings home their lost daughter. And King Randor's like, You've made me so happy. And I think, all right, Adam's arc is done. Like he has fulfilled his job and completed his family and adora gets a couple days on eternia and then skeletor and hordak come and try to take her away and she realizes if she if she stays she's doing a disservice to the people who really need her and i think that is it's awesome like it's a great choice and it it gives her so much more responsibility than than he-man and you know something that the writers keep noting is that Whereas Adam and He-Man are two very different characters, Adora and She-Ra are basically the same. They're both very, like, duty-bound and honorable and uh, and noble.
0: I did notice that, which, <laughs> as a total newbie to this series, brought about one of my major questions, which is why does her identity need to be a secret? I find <laughs> Adora and She-Ra to be so similar And really, the stakes, at least in this pilot, seem so low. And it's, I don't know who else the Horde could think this mysterious warrior woman is. They're like, ah, the princess escaped, and it's this lady's fault. And I, the, the, you really have to suspend your disbelief to like let the alter ego thing even slide.
1: Oh, I mean, yeah, there's no way that the rebels shouldn't have figured out that Adam is He-Man. Okay, Prince Adam shows up. He's like, I have a friend who could help you fight. And then He-Man shows up. They rescue He-Man. Oh, then Adam's back. And then <laughs> He-Man comes back. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, I guess if you really, because clearly the answer is that's the superhero trope, right? Right. But if you really want to find an in-world answer, maybe it's to protect Adam's identity. Um, I don't know. it, it or maybe, I mean, if you want to dig psychologically, because Adora kind of doesn't have her own life. And so maybe she's trying to claim one for herself to have her own identity and not be she And there actually will be an episode we'll watch later that is about that duality.
0: I can buy that. I can buy that. Um, Speaking of the life that she doesn't have, one of the... The most stone cold plot holes in this whole thing for me was that four people were allowed to keep the memory of Adora's existence and everyone else didn't. So poor Tila is like, No, who is this though? And no one ever really like stops to convince her or check in with her. There were two times during this pilot that I laughed just out loud by myself, and that was one of them because she really got a bad deal. What was the
1: other time you laughed?
0: The other time I laughed was the first time the horse transformed into the Pegasus unicorn. Is it Swiftwind? Swiftwind, yes. And Swiftwind could suddenly talk and is and had the another goofy 80s voice. He's like, "No, I'm Swiftwind." And they would go flying. But what made me laugh not only was his voice, but the fact that it doesn't appear that he can talk when he's not transformed. And and, uh, Battle Cat can. And so it's just another like raw deal that a character gets. Like, I lose my sentience when I'm not transformed. Oh my gosh, poor Swiftwind.
1: I do want to say as far as the... uh... The voice casting goes, so there's only six actors who work on this show, and one of them is the producer, and one of them is the producer's daughter. They and really go for it. <laughs> yes. And I I appreciate the, um, the challenge. And, you know, everyone always kind of looks at these shows and say, oh, these were the cheapest cartoons of the 80s. And actually, the opposite was true. Filmation was the last studio to do all of their animation in America. And so it was very cost prohibitive to hire a big voice cast because they had to pay, like, American wages to their animators and not just ship overseas.
0: You could see, though, where the great care was taken in the animation and then sort of where it wasn't. So similar to other 80s shows, like, if you imagine Scooby-Doo and you see Shaggy and Scooby running and the background is repeating itself over and over, Um, in the, like, slave people, uh, <laughs> those the same slaves walking by over and over. And yet... When uh, He Man disguises himself in a robot body, they take the time to draw like little tufts of hair sticking out of his uniform. I was like, oh, see. They had a budget. They just invested it in very specific places.
1: I love that that's a plot point, too, is that He-Man's hair gives him away at one point. And it it busts
0: him really fast. I was expecting them to, like, give him the benefit of the doubt and let him sneak around a little bit. And the second they see him, they're like, that's He-Man. What an idiot. (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
1: Fun. I don't know if if you or anybody listening will care, but Filmation had a a system called uh, Same As, Same Dash As. And it was their stock animation system. So anytime someone animated something they liked, they would put it in like a file and then they would use it in later episodes again because they thought, oh, this is a really great piece. We can keep using it and then we can, you know, put our efforts into something else next time. Uh, so that is why you saw like scenes of slaves just over and over again. So I want to know, just at the very base level, like, did you see the twist coming about Adora's identity and what did you think?
0: By the twist, do you mean literally that it's He-Man's sister? Yes. So I thought it was pretty obvious considering like one of the first scenes is the baby getting stolen. Like who else would that baby be? I was actually more surprised when she was introduced as a bad guy and I was trying to figure out is she legitimately a bad guy who's going to need to go through sort of a massive change of heart? Or is this just like a hypnosis situation? And the answer was both. <laughs> <Yeah>. It's both.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, and I think I think it says something, you know, probably for our purposes, one of the more interesting sequences is after He-Man is in prison, which, by the way, there's a lot of being imprisoned, a lot of metaphors and literal imprisonment in this five-part episode. When He-Man is at the fr- in prison and he tells Adora, hey, just go see for yourself, like, what the world is like, you know? She's like, oh, I haven't really left the fright zone, but Hordak tells me that we're the rightful rulers and everyone likes us, and He-Man's like, why don't you go see? I thought that was cool, even though the scenes of her investigating are so dramatic and, like, it's, you know, like an old guy wants water and a trooper throws him in a lake. Like, yeah, that's horrible, but also it's, like, not really grave social injustice. You know?
0: Yeah, it was really on the nose in a way that, I mean, I I loved, but was also so over the top because one of those scenes is like <laughs> an airplane just comes rolling up. <laughs> and and She Ra's like, what's happening? And th- these two citizens in just the most exposition heavy dialogue are like, well, John here was talking about how the taxes are way too high and an evil robot overheard him and here comes an airplane to blow up his farm.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was like, let's let's get this in really quick. Like 10 second scene, Adora gets it. Something you said at the beginning of our conversation that is really true. You know, as you pointed out, this is She-Ra's story. The whole kind of five-part pilot is about giving her control of the narrative. It's basically He-Man passing off the, the torch or the sword, as it were. And that had real-world implications as as well, as you deduced. It was a way to... Because She-Ra clearly is, is marketed towards girls, but the people at Filmation really wanted boys to watch it. So they're like, all right, if we put He-Man in, Maybe we'll trick the boys into thinking this is cool. And it totally worked. And I remember as a kid, I liked this show way more than He-Man. Even then, I deduced, like, this show, it's just richer. Like, it has this background. Having the horde and having the bad guys win, it it's such a more interesting uh, background on which to tell different stories. So, She-Ra was the the second highest rated cartoon uh, of the year it debuted right behind GI Joe which was a new show uh it had a 4.3 share which i think means 4.3 million people watched it every week which mm-hmm. is pretty good yeah so it totally worked and like i definitely at some point want to talk about the show's marketing of the toys and how much of a failure that was but as far as just on the show like i think it's pretty uniquely positioned to appeal to all genders
0: absolutely um and i'm interested in seeing where it succeeds and where it fails as a feminist piece because even in this pilot there were moments that were so strong and there were moments that totally whiffed because there'd be quotes like that's not very ladylike or (laughs) just like a woman and i would say they were like 50 50 for no you're supposed to think that's evil and dumb and then suddenly like he-Man would put his finger to Shira's lips and you're supposed to be like, oh, that's okay. And it's not, it's just like weird and sexist. And so they're trying so hard and I want to see kind of what their success rate is going to be throughout throughout the series because it, it's bumping along.
1: I completely agree and I knew you were going to bring up. it. It is, <laughs> and I just said it was one of my favorite scenes and yet I still regret the unfortunate dialogue that's not very ladylike. But then again, you're not much of a lady anyway although scorpia of all the horde villains my least favorite uh i do not like her that voice oh she talks like this like she's from brooklyn kind of
0: uh the vil- the side villains i kept i mean all the side characters so many mascots which was very 80s we got to make as many potential toys as possible but so many just like catra she's a cat <laughs> angela she's an angel
1: <laughs> there broom was, is a broom yeah
0: yeah. <laughs> there was also the other like most 80s thing about this was how violent but non-violent it was there was some violent animation happening but it was like they're just stunned uh the one guy whose powers is just eye beams uh he has an uh, the eye beams that threw off he-man's sense of balance and i was like either he is just like messing with he-man's inner ear a little bit or he's giving him brain damage and i don't know like
1: <laughs> it's such like warner brothers style violence
0: well right and this uh the the big magna ray was apparently going to affect an entire forest but is also stopped with a rock yes and i'm like all right <laughs> and then
1: Kordak has enough power for a second shot which was never mentioned before because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he drained just enough to get it to work one
0: uh, <laughs> I
1: don't there's a couple subplots like I love the overall through line of He-Man finding She-Ra the magna beam the harpies oh my god that harpy scene I do not like it at all no um Two earlier you mentioned you know 50-50 on the dialogue being either they're calling out sexism or it's just casually sexist. <laughs> yeah. I, the other example you mentioned that wasn't He-Man I think is really interesting because there's a lot of that in the scene when Adora is captured by Skeletor and she's in Snake Mountain and then as she rushes, she fights her way out. And I, I almost feel like that scene, it's at the start of the fifth episode, to me it's like almost consciously, and maybe I'm giving the writer too much credit, bringing femininity to Masters of the Universe because it's so... On the nose, (laughs) like it's just so creepy, and then. At when she's busting out, Shira goes, no one around here knows how to treat a lady. And, of course, the scene is capped by a true 80s villain defeat. Everyone is just laughing at Skeletor as he says, "Ah, female He-Man. This, this is, is the, the worst day, day of, of my life. And, like, that's <laughs> the end of the scene. It's like, no, he's a criminal. Yeah. <laughs> Why aren't you doing anything? He's the big
0: bad of this universe. Right. I was trying to also decide, and I think this is something I'm going to wrestle with through most of this show, uh, because my personal brand of feminism really tries to live by a woman can be whatever she wants. If she wants to show her body, if she wants to cover it up, it's all fine. If she wants to be promiscuous, if she wants to be conservative, it's all fine. Be a mother, don't. Get married, don't. I don't care. Feminism is you're supposed to be able to do just whatever you please because you're free. And I feel like pretty often we scoff at uh, when a woman is stereotypically feminine, and I think that's a mistake. And there's a moment where, uh, you know, a big, like, skull falls on top. It's like an animal skull falls on top of Skeletor. And the thing that Shira says is like, well, I think that's an improvement to your look. And I'm like, wait, why is she concerned with aesthetic? Like, why is she making like cute jokes? And I struggled with it for a second. And then I went, no, like, it's great that she's feminine. It's great that she feels empowered in being a little bit about aesthetic. Like, that's fine. And I I feel like I'm going to have that conversation with myself a lot while watching this.
1: I do not think you are wrong about that. Maybe it will make you feel better. To know, and again, you know, I'm of the critical school of thought that intent only means so much. It's a window into something, but it's interpretation, but it's not the be all end all. That said, I did find it interesting to see how keyed in these writers were to the things that we would be talking about. So here's what Larry DeTilio, who again wrote Four Fifths of this pilot, said uh, I think the way you make things girl friendly is you don't worry about the fact that she's a girl. You let her do what everybody else does. Everybody was equal on the show. We wanted a show where many times women were not only the equal of men, but the superiors of men. And that's something that Lou Scheimer also echoes. Like, his whole point wasn't feminism, which I disagree with, but he just wanted to show that women could do anything that they wanted. And I think that you do see that in the show. I think there's a a huge variety of women characters of all types.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I'm glad to see so many female characters on the good side and the bad side because it gives them the chance to have diverse aesthetics, diverse intention, diverse personality. And I mean, that's sort of, I guess my final observation is how many things Shira is being successful at that we're still struggling with today um when I went and saw Star Wars episode 7, I remember feeling so moved by how many women I just saw standing in the ranks of the Empire and standing in the ranks of the Rebellion, just existing within the space of this world and how especially in sort of geek culture things that's still sometimes rare and this is so many years later and the second we see the horde there's girls. And the second we see the rebellion, there's girls. And this is a very action packed show. You know, girls punching, kicking, flying, riding. And the fact that I feel like marketing professionals in toys and media today are still questioning whether or not young women can enjoy that is shocking. Because this, you know, This was literally before I was on this earth, this show started.
1: It was 32 years ago, which is crazy. And it, yeah, just kind of, I don't want to say effortlessly because that takes away from the work of people who, you know, put the effort in, but seemingly easily is perfectly integrated. It's great. Now, there is a huge caveat, and we're going to do an episode on this, but I need to mention it now because I know someone's going to bring it up. She-Ra is super hashtag white feminism. This yeah. is a very white show. Now, the series Bible even mentions that there should be people of all colors. And I don't know whether it was the animators or just something at Lost in Translation didn't happen. So there's an episode that kind of head-on deals with taking away a black character and making her a pink character. We'll talk about that later.
0: People of all colors, you know, like purple and green. (laughs) And
1: and that's kind of the fantasy trope that is unfortunate about Shiro, right? That's one of the very eighties things. It's like, yeah, there are there are all colors, but not real life colors. You have white and then you have fantasy colors.
0: Yeah, I mean, 80s nostalgia is really hip right now. You have your Stranger Things and your Glow, and I've watched Glow very recently too, and sort of remembered that. In the late 80s, early 90s, there was this message of equality and freedom and like togetherness. And it was like, yeah, racism is over. And then you realize, like, no, the way society presented race was far, far from perfect or far from done with it. And so I think there's a lot of difference between saying our show is for everyone and actually creating a show that is for everyone.
1: A hundred percent. And, you know, I would still argue that She-Ra's heart was in the right place, and compared to the other, like, Transformers, G.I. Joe, He-Man, Thundercats, it did better, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it still had a long way to go. That said, I'm really glad that you found, uh, you saw what I saw in this show, that it has troubles, but it's pretty good, right?
0: (laughs) It is. pretty good. I'm going to Dragon Con at the end of August, and I was like, is anyone cosplaying She-Ra? there's an 80s cartoon photo shoot I should go talk to those guys I mean I wonder if there's gonna be a shira. and that was after one sitting with this show
1: <laughs> so yeah I guess um like I said this episode is gonna be longer than the others because we're just getting into it but to close out I'd like to know like are you looking forward to exploring the rest of the show now
0: I am. I'm looking forward to, uh, especially meeting more characters because I believe the implication was we freed one castle, but there's going to be more kingdoms with more people. And I did some spoiler free Googling, uh, and there's like a mermaid and an ice lady. And for one, I was like, oh, man, look at all these toys they could manufacture. But on the other, I was just excited to see, you know, we already have so many female characters, and the show is going to give us even more, and I'm stoked to meet them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I i will mention kind of the plan for this show going forward is I... After my Wonder Woman binge, I went through and <laughs> I have an embarrassing amount of books on she Shira. So I read through and I'm like, okay, this seems like this would be good. So we're gonna talk about episodes that kind of directly address progressive issues first. And then I think if you guys like this show, Lauren and I talked about going back and doing all the episodes. It's 65 episodes on Netflix. That's a lot. So hopefully you guys like this and then uh we'll have a lot of fun. And I do want to point out, even in the episodes that are directly addressing issues that we care about. There's a lot of failures and we're we're not gonna sugarcoat things but I think that when we really get to the dregs of Shira that might be when the really like the claws come out so we'll see where this show goes
0: <laughs> well I do believe that you should be critical of the things that you love and so I'm sure there will be moments that I sound like I hate this but I I really only give even the time of day to things that are worth it and this seems like it's gonna be worth it
1: a hundred percent agree and you know I I told Lauren when we were planning, I don't want this to fall into the unfortunately gender dynamic of like, guy likes it and the lady nags on it. And I don't think that's what's going to happen because I think we're both being pretty real about the show. It's going to
0: be all nagging. Yeah. All genders, all nagging.
1: But like, I don't know. I mean, you, you just experienced this in 2017, right? And you are a professional woman, uh, got a lot going on. Um, you're an established person and you like the show. And to me, that says even 32 years later, this has some potential.
0: Yes. And, you know, when I'm watching it and my husband walks into the room and just out of context, he's a muscly he-man like tied to a table. And he's like, what are you watching? That just that that alone was worth taking on this project.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So much bondage. All right. So next episode next week, we're going to do Duel at Devlin. So please feel free to follow along on Netflix. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. We actually don't have anything set up to do that at this point, but we'll post some way for you to get at us, uh, when, you know, with the episode. So yeah, talk back to us as long as you have constructive things to say, good or bad. We'd love to hear them.
0: Yeah, this was awesome. I can't wait to watch the next episode. Thank you. Thank you for this idea. Yeah.
1: Thanks for doing it. Hell yeah. (laughs)
0: Do we do we have a moral today?
1: Oh, yeah. So that's something that's going to be coming up is uh, moral segments. Because as you know, these 80s shows like typically have morals at the end. The pilot forgoes morals. So there isn't one baked into the show. But I don't know. If you were to assign a moral to today's episode, what would you say?
0: Oh, my gosh. Uh, I think... I mean, this is so cheesy, bit that's the 80s. I think the moral would be... Be open to everything, be willing to try new things and confront new experiences with an open mind because when Eric presented me this idea, I literally was like, that's the weirdest thing I ever heard. I have to sleep on it. And by morning I was I was ready and uh, I'm just so glad to say yes. I'm so glad to be open to a new experience.
1: At first I thought you were going to relate that to like Adam's experiences of like, <laughs> you know, he did what the sorcerer said and it worked out, but I, I like that it was a real life world too. <laughs> Thanks for listening to she Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'd super appreciate it. You can also send us any feedback you have either to our email address, progressiveofpower@gmail.com, at gmail.com, or as a comment on our website at progressiveofpower.wordpress.com. And make sure you listen to the show all the way through to the end. In future episodes, we're going to use this space to promote progressive organizations and causes we like a lot, Related to the topics we're talking about, that can help make the world a better place. But for now, just enjoy this rad theme music.